Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 27 through 38. Let's open in prayer. Father, it is so good to be with your people. We desire to hear from you tonight. It's so good to be with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who seek after you, to honor you, to glorify you. And Father, we pray that you would just give us a fresh anointing of our ears, our minds to hear you, that you would increase our faith and love for the lost, that you would give us boldness to share. But Lord, may it always be in love. May it be our words seasoned with salt, but full of grace. Lord, it's you that we want to honor. It's you that we want to see lifted up. So we ask tonight that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us that you have power over the darkness. Lord, increase our faith tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when we stop and think, we, we see that Jesus is most likely returning from the ruler's house that we saw in Matthew nine twenty three, And perhaps going to his own house, we don't know exactly for sure. But we do know that there's a large crowd. We can probably even envision a, a, a very great large crowd there's praise and exaltation because the raising of the, the ruler's daughter. While well, he thought she was dead, and she was, Jesus Christ raised her, showing that he has power over, over death. And in the midst of this crowd, attached to this crowd, were two blind men who had enough faith to press on. Press on even as far as to, to follow Jesus to his own home, which seems impossible being they're blind. But where there's a will, there's a way. When a person truly wants to know who Jesus Christ is and wants a touch of Jesus Christ, they press on no matter what is going on. God gives them that faith and gives them that direction whether it's bringing people into their life or just ministering through an angel. God knows how to reach them. God knows how to lift them up. And, and that's the story that we're going to see today. It begins with this power over darkness that, that is physical and spiritual sight because these men are blind. There's two of them. And when we talk about blindness, there is a physical where a person can't see with their physical eyes. But there's this spiritual blindness. The people do not see Jesus Christ. They do not see him as Lord and Savior. At that time, the, the Jewish leadership didn't even acknowledge him as, as really their Messiah. John, clearly, the Gospel of John makes it clear that Jesus came to his own, but they received him not. Matthew 12, when we get there, we're going to see that they will accuse him of everything that he does, these signs, these miracles. 
And remember, the Jews were looking for a sign. These were the signs of the Messiah, and they would reject them. They would suppress the truth. And they would say that it's the work of the devil. And they chose to suppress that truth. Well, begin with me in our text, Matthew 9, verse 27, and Jesus went on from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy upon us, son of David. So we see that Jesus is moving on from the healing, again, of the, the ruler's daughter. And these two blind men use a phrase, first time in the book of Matthew, Have mercy upon us, son of David. Now, this term son of David is used 31 times in the book of Matthew, 14 in the book of, again, Mark, and then also with Luke and John. Now, only Matthew talks about these two blind men. Their physical blindness is referred in the Bible when they were born, or they acquired it. We don't know. Eye diseases were common in the ancient world. But one thing I've noticed in the Bible, that, that here some of the most vivid pictures of the Bible center around blindness, including that of the Sodomites, if you remember, groping about Lot's house. Or there's the, the dim-eyed Isaac, tricked by his deceitful son, the heel catcher, Jacob. Or Samson, because of his choices, his sin, his eyes were gouged out. All because of his sin. And then there's the temporary blindness of, of the man called Saul, who became Paul, wrote much of the Bible, struck down on that road to Damascus with a bright light, only to open his spiritual eyes to Acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. Metamorphically, blindness uh, may describe mere ignorance of men. That's what Romans chapter 2 and verse 19 is talking about. It usually, though, carries the idea of an unwillingness to, to face up to the truth. You can find that in James 1, 22 through 24. Now, notice what I said again, the idea of an unwillingness to face up to the truth. A person who knows the truth will be set free, but sometimes people don't want to know the truth. Truth, whether it be about them or a relationship, they bury it, they suppress it. And they become oftentimes very spiritual, blind. Then there's the case of those who simply do not believe in Christ. This is the work of Satan. Blinded by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 will say. But I'd like to take you back to Psalm 119, 18. It says, Open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things of your law. Another translation ends it this way, with your teaching. The law and teaching reveal really the character of God, that God is holy and God is pure. And as far as it is, God had a plan to redeem sinful man that he could come back into a relationship with him. We need to pray that God would open up the eyes of our heart 
spiritually. We see him with all of his glory. See his will for our life when we're reading and, and realize that God is speaking to us personally. Not only personally, sometimes congregationally to us as a group because this is something he wants us to do in the community. Or even mean afar on a mission. But what I do love is this approach of these two blind men, these two blind beggars. If you focus on it, you see that they cried out pathetically to Jesus as he passed by. Note again in verse 27, these two blind men followed him crying out, have mercy upon his son of David. It was ongoing, it was continual. They were persistent. Now, they were crying out for mercy. Now, think of this. Mercy is not emotion. Mercy is this practical response to a need. Now, the phrase they use is the son of David, which is a messianic title. And it's the first time, as I mentioned, uh, that he's called the son of David here in verse 27. And it's interesting because these men, no doubt, were confessing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They weren't crying out for justification, but they were crying out for mercy. They didn't make demands, but sought Jesus with a humble, trusting petition. But the question rises is, How did they know that he was the Son of God? How did they know that he was the Messiah, the appointed one? We're going to see in a moment there were certain signs and miracles that the Messiah would do. But they couldn't see these things. But they could hear about them. They heard of all the miracles that Jesus had done. Miracles that were signs. They heard the talk of of people describing the teaching. Maybe they weren't there, and maybe in some cases they were there. And and people were amazed at the teaching. One who spoke with authority, there was something different about him. He wasn't afraid to touch an unclean person. He was quite different from the religious leaders of that time. So they cry out to him, have mercy upon a son of David. In fact, let me go and take you to Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. It says, the record of the genealogy of the Messiah, referring to Jesus. Notice the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is for you and me. They, they wouldn't have known it, but this genealogy was kept. The genealogy was in the temple until the day it was destroyed in 70 A.D. The term was common. It, it takes them back to the Old Testament. Again, in Matthew 12, 23, notice all the crowds were amazed and saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can they? You see, they they saw the miracles, they saw the signs. The religious leaders weren't following, they weren't pointing, but the people had a question. The talk was there. These were the things that, again, God's word spoke about. And then in Matthew 21, 9, it says the crowds were going ahead of him. Those who had followed were shouting. 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The anticipation continued to rise more and more till the day that he comes riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, 9 says this. Again, the crowds were going ahead of him. And those who followed him said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in 21, 15, it says, But when the chief priest and the scribes saw these wonderful things that he had done, the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. See, the people were recognizing these signs. But the religious leaders, they chose not to respond. See, we see these two men, but only recorded in Matthew. There's a similar passage I want to call your attention to. It's really in Matthew 20. Verses 29 through 34, let me read and I'll show you the similarity. And they were leaving Jericho. A large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy upon us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more. Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Now, these are similar stories because they're two blind men, but they're two different events. What I want to call your attention to is they both recognized, both spiritually had eyes that were being opened. Physically blind, yes. But they were recognizing that Jesus was the son of David. How, how could they even know that? Again, as I mentioned, those miracles and those signs, let me read from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And then the eyes of the blind would be opened... The ears of the death would be unstopped. The lame would leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute would shout for joy. See, these things were literally happening in the area of Galilee. Jesus Christ was opening the eyes of the blind and the deaf could hear and the lame were walking. The mute was speaking. They heard of these things. They heard the talk, the excitement. The crowds were large. 5,000, 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 estimated. Largest town, probably 3,000. You could see these crowds moving through the wilderness, pressing on. The talk was, everyone was telling of what they heard and what they saw. And these blind men, unable to move as easily, said he would hear these stories. The eyes of the blind were open. Being that they were blind physically, they looked and watched for an opportunity 
And when the opportunity rose, they, they would press on. They would not let go. They were persistent in every way. And these men were blind. But nothing was going to stop them from being touched by the Messiah. For those that are, again, have physical sight, don't have the disabilities of this, they seem to be sometimes insensitive to what God is doing. They don't see that need. They'll hear the story. They'll be amazed. But they become so rooted, so comfortable in their life, or what they're going through becomes their identity. Oh, they may walk for a while. They may chase after for a moment. But they don't have that persistence because they don't recognize the desperate need they have. They don't recognize their blindness of their soul. The healing of the blind recalls again, as I mentioned this, Isaiah 50, uh, 35, verse 5 through 6. It, it really confirms the identity that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only was he doing them, his, his claims, his words were unique, pointing to the fact of who he was. In fact, if you remember when he, when he came to Nazareth in Luke 4, let me read verses 16 through 21. And it says he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and, and it was his custom. He entered the synagogue on Sabbath and he stood up to read the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place written. Let me stop there. They didn't have books. They had scrolls. So he would have had to unroll it to a certain place and this is the place he turned it to. It said the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recover the sight of the blind and set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the tenant and sat down. And notice all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to say to him, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everyone must decide, put their hands over their mouth. He was claiming, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. I'm the promised one. Well, continue with me in our text, though. Verse 28, it says, when he entered the house, the blind man came up to him, and Jesus said to him, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Now, this is amazing when you stop and think about it. We don't know how or when these men first had, had become physically blind. It may have been a disease, a sin, an accident, but they certainly weren't spiritually blind. Well, Jesus simply paid no attention to these two physically blind men as they kept pathetically crying out, Have mercy upon me, son of David. These blind men simply did not give up. See, their faith was being tested. And they were persistent. 
And they knew that Jesus could heal them. And they were not going to let anything stop them from getting to him. See, that's a failure of so many people. They're, they quit. They're not persistent. They want to touch. They want a healing. They want a word. They want to be used, but they, they quit. It's always too soon to quit. Now, what's interesting about this, this passage again is they find the house where Jesus is staying in. People like to argue and divide over how could they find this. Well, perhaps the crowd moved on. But I also know that if you have a desire to know Jesus, if you have a desire to find Jesus, the Spirit will draw you. The Spirit will lead you. God will bring people in your life to guide you directly to him. See, every one of us are without excuse. We also know that people that are physically blind have a sensitivity that, that the rest of us don't have that aren't physically blind. They can hear things. They, they can focus on things that are there that we don't even focus on because we can see with our eyes. And perhaps they just continued to focus upon the conversation he was having in the crowd and they just kept following his words. Or the conversations of the people talking about where he's going. Or perhaps they just got in the center of the crowd and they were moved along in that crowd. Either way, they were persistent. But what Jesus does is he's testing them by not responding to them. He's testing them for the genuineness of their faith. At the same time, it was creating in them this stir of expectation. Just like the woman who was touched the hem of garment. If I only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. God was working in them, stirring them, their faith up. So again, in verse 28, he says, And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. See, Jesus asked if they had faith, and because they did, he healed them. God always honors faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's an obscure passage in Psalm 146.8. It says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteousness. These people were blind. These people were humbling themselves. They were coming like a child. Not with demands, but the cry of mercy. Now please note with me how faith shows up in chapters 8 and 9. We saw the centurion with this, this great faith, if you remember. And the contrast to that great faith was the, the little faith of the disciples when they were in the storm. And then there's the, the, the friends of the paralytic who had a faith that could be seen. And if you remember, they, they brought their friend and they climbed up on the roof and they tore the roof out and lowered him right down before Jesus. They pressed. 
persistent. Don't forget the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus said, whose faith, daughters, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Not faith in faith, but faith in his ability and who he was. Jesus honored that. Then there's another man, Jairus, whose faith was tested by the delay upon the road. See, the, the woman who wanted to touch him, there's this story within a story that just stops, and I can imagine this man frustrated, and hey, my daughter, my daughter. His faith tested. But he was rewarded in the end because the Lord raised her up. Verse 29 continues, and then he touched their eyes and saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And the eyes were opened. Jesus sternly warned them. See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all of the land. Publicity of these miracles really could hinder Jesus' mission and really divert the public attention upon the, the miracles instead of the message. The miracles were signs to show who he is, to authenticate, but it's the message of who he is is what's important. And this is precisely what had happened in Mark 1, verse 45. Let me read and show you. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely, spread the news around such extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter into the city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. The people, desperate, pressed on even into the, the wilderness unpopulated areas. Sometimes God touches us and he'd have us to say nothing and sometimes he touches us just simply so we would be a testimony and tell others. We need to listen to what he is saying to us. There are times that your actions, your words can hinder the gospel message and the work of Christ. We must listen to the Lord and do as he says. What we see is here that Jesus has this power over darkness. That is in the sense of these, these physical eyes. He also has the power over the darkness of spiritual eyes. But he will not force a person to see. A person has to want to see and know the truth that will set them free. You know, you and I can share with someone, if somebody is really seeking the Lord, you, you can say something like this and the Lord will lead you. If you really want to know the truth that will set you free, read the book of John and, and, and pray and ask God, God, if you're real, will you reveal yourself to me? And watch and see what God does. 
as he opens her heart. But see, some just suppress that truth. But he has the power. He will never force anyone to believe. We're going to see the power over demons next. Jesus not yet completed his labor that day, probably exhausted. The crowds have been pressing around him. And Jesus is exhausted, but his day's not over. Dependent upon the Father for the strength. These things are good sometimes because it reminds us we can't do this on our own power. Zachariah, not by power or might, but by my spirit. How we need his spirit. Not only to open our eyes up, but to give us the strength and the wisdom and the grace. It's in verse 32 we continue. As they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out and the mute spoke. Now think for a second, comparing this man with the, the two that are described in Matthew 8.28 we saw. In fact, let's read that together. Matthew 8.28. If you remember when Jesus and his disciples crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, that's where it begins. And he came to the other side of the country of Gadarenes and two men who were demon-possessed, met him. And they were coming out of the tombs, and they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by their way. How differently this demonic possession affects victims. You can't just say it's always this way or that way. The supposition is that this man lost his speech It was due to natural causes, but we don't know. The words and deeds of Jesus regard him as one who was actually possessed. See, some people try to explain away these miracles. There's a commentator I like in certain ways, William Barclay. He has great background, some Greek studies. But one of the things he does is he denies or explains away the miraculous. How can he know the background and all these things so well and yet deny the miraculous? That's so common, isn't it, when we, even in the church, people are saying, did Jesus really do that? You've heard people say that try to explain it away. They, they need to have this logical way and they deny the supernatural. They deny who he is. The words, the deeds of Jesus regard him really as the one who was possessed. This man was simply possessed. Jesus has this power over this, not only this spiritual darkness, but this demonic world, which is spiritually dark. And this man is set free. Jesus never does it in the, the same way. And yet there are many today that think they're demon busters. 
They're chasing after demons instead of seeking first the kingdom of God is righteousness. Their calling is to chase away demons. Our calling is to worship the Lord. To give our lives as a living sacrifice. To live for Him. To fulfill the great commission. Not to change our country or change the world. But bring the life-changing message of who Jesus Christ is. Because when Jesus Christ comes in the heart of a person, they change. They change from the inside out. If, they, if, if there's a politician, his, his heart is opened by the Lord and Savior. Then, then the decisions he makes are changed. What the world needs now is Jesus Christ. Just as they did then. This man had demons in him. We don't know how many. We don't know why. We don't know if he opened the door through demonic activity. But he was demon-possessed, the scripture says. He was unable to speak. And again, it reminds us of the passage I read earlier. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, where it said the eyes of the blind were opened and the ears of the deaf were unstopped. The lame will leap as a deer, the tongue of the mute. And the captives will be set free. These are the things that Jesus did. They were signs, and the Jews looked for a sign. Time and time again, the crowds were simply amazed at Jesus. They were saying, nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. This was the conversation every place you went. Have you heard about this one, Jesus? Jesus of of Nazareth. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's casting out demons. The lame are walking. Yet the religious leaders rejected him, even accused him. Of being in the same league as Satan. Look with me. In verse 34 of our text. But the Pharisee was saying he cast out demons by the, the ruler of the demons. Sadly, the Pharisees were unable to recognize this was the Christ. This was God in the flesh. And God was doing something unique. And even his teaching and his works should have illuminated these things because they had the word of God they could compare it, but they refused to. You notice they chose spiritual blindness. They attribute his powers to the only other existing source that was Satan. They were denying the reality these miraculous works were of something of God. So they simply refused to acknowledge the truthfulness of his teaching, his moral excellence, and his character. The ministry of doing good every place he went. It's in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 2. It says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you have come from God as a teacher and no one 
can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. Here's a religious leader, and he recognizes these signs. There was a remnant. God always has a remnant. Now the question tonight is, are you the remnant? There are many that love to hear the stories of who Jesus Christ is, but they've never received him as Lord and Savior. They deny the miraculous. They deny who he is. But he is the Christ, Peter said. He is the Son of the living God. In John 9, verse 31, it says this, and we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone God-fearing does his will, he hears them. And since the beginning of time, it's never been heard of anyone open the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here's a blind man that was touched by him. He knew. Have you been touched by the Savior? If you've been touched by the Savior, truly touched, not emotional experience, but if he's opened up the eyes of your heart, you've been born again, you will be changed for eternity. You will continue to press on, be transformed. You have a desire to see his glory. You'll have a desire to be used by him. And if you don't, you're suppressing the truth, the truth that would set you free. It's interesting is they were making this accusation, this is of the devil, they were suppressing that truth. And this rebellion would continue to, to grow more and more and more till the ultimate climax in chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. We'll look at that when we get there. But what I really love is this. Jesus doesn't argue with the people. But he rather went out to help those who would receive him. You see where he put his energy? He went to those that were in need, spiritual need, spiritual blindness. Now, remember we're talking about blindness here. Those that would respond. This is how Jesus leads us. He leads us to those that will respond. Now, we know not every person will respond, but we do know that God's word does not come back void. And sometimes it takes time to cultivate. Sometimes they have to prepare the ground in their heart. But his word does not come back void. And I love that because Jesus doesn't argue, doesn't defend himself. He simply went out and preached the gospel of the kingdom. What was the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. He was God in the flesh, headed to the cross to die for sinful man. And all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So his mission was to preach the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he, it means he's still offering himself to the nation as the king. And yet many would reject, but God would have a, a remnant. Later on, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the same gospel, to perform the same 
miracles that he was doing. The miracles that authenticated that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. The one that Deuteronomy talked about, that he would raise up another like Moses. Let me read from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. In fact, we're going to be looking at that next week. These 12 disciples, Jesus sent out instructive, do not go into the way of Gentiles, do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as for you, go and preach. That word preach is herald as well. Herald the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out the demons. Freely you receive, freely you will give. Jesus sends them out in his own authority and they would point it back that they did this in the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. They would not touch God's glory. And the people would be amazed. See, this commission is, is not our commission today. See, that was given first again. Go to, again, the cities of the Jews. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Their mission, first of all, was to go to the lost sheep of Israel. He came to his own, but they received him not. He would make it known. Eventually, he would go to the Gentiles. And they needed to learn that they would not claim the power of these miracles. All of this relates to Israel as a nation. Please understand, not the church. See, for the the Jews required a sign. The church should never be looking for a sign in the sense of these miracles. We should be looking for the Lord's return, certainly. But God has given us faith. And our faith rests in Jesus Christ. Notice again what John 5, 43 says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive him. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What is he talking about? He's talking about cult leaders. We see more cults today than ever before. I read an article of someone that's being lifted up as a, a cult leader has all the qualities of it. Has the money that, that is, is backing him, the people following him. Drifting, drifting, drifting from the main emphasis. Verse 35 continues. Jesus was going through the cities and villages, teaching to the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Now, this district of Galilee specifically was mentioned in Matthew 4.23. There's three towns that you'll find consistently that you'll find through the scripture, Chorazim, Bethsaida, Capernaum. No, Chorazim and, and Capernaum were actually in Galilee, but Bethsaida was a, across, again, the, the sea, or across the Jordan on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it, was, it was called a, a Galiletus. 
But it was all, in one sense, connected. This was the area that Jesus regularly went to. It was the primary focus of Jesus' ministry. The region of Galilee and the synagogues that existed, the Jewish people. This is the the Jewish population that initially that he would come to. He would come to his own first, but when they reject him, then he would go to the Gentiles. So he would widen the ministry from there and go beyond. Now, it was the good news of the kingdom. This was the primary topic of Jesus' preaching, and that he was the long-awaited Christ. What was the message? If you remember, John the Baptist was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 4, 17, for the time that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message never changed, and the message today should never change, is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The world doesn't understand sin today, much of it doesn't understand repentance. In fact, some people get very angry at God because all God would have to do is change their circumstances and they wouldn't sin. And they don't realize that God's testing them. So they might know whether their faith is real or not. Now notice with me in verse 35, it says, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness... There's an adjective there, every, used twice. What's pointing to repeatedly is this emphasis on this unlimited power to heal. There was nothing that Jesus could not heal. There's nothing that Jesus cannot do. Verse 36, it continues, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. Distressed like a sheep without a shepherd. Well, the sheep that you see in that verse. And Jesus sees them bullied, oppressed. In the face of all the problems, they were helpless. They were unable to rescue themselves. No way to be able to escape their tormentors. The words, like sheep without a shepherd, really recall Ezekiel 34. And this is pointing to the fact that Israel's spiritual condition reflected, the, again, the failures of the religious leader. They were false shepherds. They were fleecing the flock, some would say. And they were hirelings, as the scripture would say in other places. By showing compassion for the abused, the neglected sheep, God's flock. Jesus was identifying himself that he was God's shepherd. He was to shepherd God's people, the Lord and the servant David. He was the promised one, the the servant of David that would come. It parallels with the Old Testament, reminds us not only the, the theme of rich background, But the shepherd can refer either to God or the Davidic Messiah, which was promised, that would be sent. Let me read a large passage, but I will not probably comment on it because it speaks for itself. I'm going to begin in Ezekiel 34, verse 11. 
It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for the herd in in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep. And I will deliver them from the places in which they have scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from all the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams in all the inhabited places of the land. And I will feed them in a good pasture. Their grazing on the ground will be on the mountains and the heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground, feed in those rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat, the strong, I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with the side and the shoulder, and thus all the weak with your horns until they have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock. I will no longer be a prey. I will judge between the sheep and another. And then I will set over them one shepherd, my shepherd, David, my servant, David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself, and he will be their shepherd. And I will be their Lord and will be their God. And my servant, David, will be a prince among them. And I, the Lord, is spoken. Jesus Christ is seen as the good shepherd. He leaves the 99 for the one. Jesus Christ is concerned about the things that you're going through today. No matter where you are, he knows. He's concerned. He will deliver you. Now the context is, is speaking first about Israel because he would go to Israel first and, and then certainly to the Gentiles. But it speaks about the very heart of God. God cares when no one else cares. Fact is today, the multitudes today are still in need of a good shepherd. There's no greater love than one who would lay down his life for another, and this is simply what Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life for you and me, that we would be redeemed, brought back. Won't force you to believe. But if you cry out to him to open the eyes of your heart, he will open the eyes of your heart. He'll show you the wonderful things of the law. Only Christ can lead them and feed the sheep as we saw in Ezekiel 34. Well, let's continue in our text. It's in verse 37 and 38. It says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest and, and send out workers into the, his harvest. See, Christ pictures himself as the, the shepherd, the harvester, the Lord of the harvest. 
And this is still true today. And, and the harvest is, is ready. The field is white. But you say, oh no, it's so dark. You're right. But God has his remnant. He's going to draw to himself. There are those that he's working in this world that are broken. And he wants to bind their wounds and bring them into the kingdom. Satan might say something like this and whisper in your ear, Oh, your neighbors, they won't listen to you. Your relatives will not respond. A harvest is not ready. Well, that may appear to be true in some cases. Sometimes people want to see how does this work out in your life. Do you have peace in the midst of a storm? Do you trust to the Lord and lean not on your own understanding? Are you going about, uh, again, the Great Commission? Going about the Father's business? Lovingly, tenderly? We need to look with our spiritual eyes and recognize that God's at work all the time. He's moving. He's doing a great work. The question always is, will we be a part of that great work? You can do all things in Christ who strengthens you. If he calls you to ministry, you can do it in the power of his spirit. If he leads you to share with a neighbor, you can do it in the power of the Spirit. And while you may not see the fruit at this time, you may be sowing the seed or watering what has already been planted. We need eyes of faith. The harvest is his. If we want to see his glory, We must obey Him. We must obey Him if we want to see souls saved. So what do we notice in our text as we come to the end of our message? First of all, Jesus has absolute authority to heal every kind of disease. Every kind of physical disease. He's not only a healer of the physical body, but he's a healer of spiritual wounds. Sometimes people don't want to let go of their past. Jesus says, cast your cares upon him because he cares. He will set you free. When people hang on to it year after year after year, it's because they're not willing to let go. That's their identity. They've been wounded. I'm a wounded person. When you become a believer, you're a new creature in Christ. Jesus, as we saw in chapter 8 and 9, has, again, this authority over nature, over the storms of life. He has absolute authority for forgiveness of sins. He has absolute authority over spiritual forces, the demonic realm. Jesus is that ultimate example of compassion toward others. The final question, the final thought. 
does Jesus have absolute authority over your life? Do you trust in him and lean not on your own understanding? Let him have the authority of your life. And you will see the glory of God. Lord Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. That is always applicable to our lives. Thank you for your spirit that convicts us and illuminates the passages we need to know that comforts us, encourages us, and exhorts us to to cast our cares upon you. Lord, we confess, apart from you, we can do nothing. We need your leading. We need your prompting. We need your power. And we thank you that you are there. You will never leave us, forsake us. You'll always be with us. Thank you again for snatching us out of the miry clay and setting us aside as your vessels of honor. Finish your work in us, Lord. Use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.